if you've been with us in recent weeks as we've been going through the letter of Philippians, you might have seen and maybe felt as I have getting to grips with chapter 2 with its great emphasis on humility and having the heart of a servant. I suppose looking from the outside, when you hear Christians considering those kinds of themes, it could be easy to conclude that being a Christian must surely be a life of drudgery and weariness. Just making yourself humble, having to serve everybody else, doesn't sound very exciting perhaps to some people. That to be a Christian is to be, make yourself to be the perpetual underdog and loser. But it's no such thing. And Paul reminds and exhorts us that to be a Christian is to be in a place of great joy. And he reminds us why that is the case. Now he's only halfway through the letter and he says, finally. You know, typical preacher, you might think. Well, actually the word that's translated as finally could easily be trans translated as moreover or furthermore. It basically signifies that he's kind of moving on to a slightly different theme at this point. Furthermore, moreover. And he refers to them as his brethren. In other words, he's, he's speaking to them as those who he knows and relates to as his brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. These things are actually things that to, to rejoice in together. They should be a source and a cause of rejoicing in you. And he takes the opportunity to remind these believers again that there are many dangers lurking that would rob them of their joy if they don't remain vigilant. And perhaps you may think, well, surely Paul has said quite enough on this matter. He, he's told us about that. Um, hasn't he got something a bit more inspirational or uplifting to say than to remind us again that there are false teachers out there? Can't he bring us some new insight? Can't he bring some new challenge? But no, under the inspiration of God's spirit, remember, he knows it needs to be repeated and he does it without apology. It's not tedious for me to write the same things because I know that if you heed it, you will remain safe. Paul's great burden is to keep these believers safe in the faith, to keep them safe in doctrine, to keep them safe in Christ. And part of that keeping safe is to keep them away from those things and those people and those doctrines which are not safe. That's his great burden. And so we're going to look at the opening three verses of chapter three this morning. And we're going to consider the three different things that Paul says and the three points of emphasis that come out of these verses. And the first is keep rejoicing. Keep rejoicing. During the very turbulent days of the 17th century, a Scottish man by the name of James Guthrie was one of many Christian men in Scotland who 
lost their lives in the midst of great religious and political upheaval. And he lost his life because he was a Christian believer. And it is said that on the morning of his execution, for he was about to be hanged, a friend visited him to see how he was. Very well, replied James. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And off to the gallows he went. I looked up the word happiness in my dictionary. And it seems as if the writers wanted to cover all of their bases, trying to define or describe what happiness is. Enjoying good of any kind, lucky, fortunate, successful, prosperous, glad, content, fitting, suitable. Hmm. I looked up the word joy. This is what they said. Exhilaration of spirit. So I found it interesting that even in my secular dictionary, the authors acknowledged that happiness is largely dependent upon external favourable circumstances. Whilst joy is perhaps something that runs deeper than that. Something within you. And they would be right. Happiness is the inward response to a favourable external circumstance. Rejoicing is the external expression of an internal reality. And there's an internal reality inside the Christian that is a source of rejoicing. And because that reality is always there, because that reality never changes, the rejoicing can always be there. Of course, here is the real issue, isn't it? Our external circumstances are frequently less than favourable. And even when they are favourable, they're very fragile. So happiness is often brief, often temporary, and always under threat. But the Christian has an internal reality which never changes, so the Christian can always have joy. Now, that's not to say that the Christian's joy never fluctuates. Let's be realistic enough to admit that our joy, even as Christians, does waver around a bit. But it never departs. It never goes away. And whereas the happiness that relies upon favourable circumstances and outcomes doesn't just grow less in bad times, let's be honest, that which once was happiness can quickly be replaced with utter hopelessness and despair. It can quickly go from one extreme right the way to the other and almost in no time at all. Was James Guthrie happy to be facing the hangman's noose? Well, maybe he wouldn't have said he was happy to be facing it. 
Did it rob him of his joy? No. Because it couldn't. Because even the hangman's noose could not take away from him that which was the source of his joy. Because the source of his joy lay elsewhere. Well, how does this all work in the life of the Christian? Well, it's because despite Paul's words coming to us almost as a command, it's a strong exhortation, rejoice in the Lord. The Christian's joy, nevertheless, is not something that you can manufacture within yourself. The Christian's joy is, as Paul says, in the Lord. Be happy. Well, there'll be many times and situations when that's just not going to happen. Rejoice in the Lord. There's no circumstance when the Christian cannot do that. That's the difference. You see, a great work of transforming grace has occurred in the life of the Christian. Hasn't it? In you? It's a work which, once begun, will continue and it will be completed. It's a work which was established in eternity past and before time began and according to God's good pleasure and purpose. It cannot be revoked and it can never be reversed. It's a work that God has done in you which relies upon the completed work of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection, and so it is a work which relies upon something which can never be revoked and which can never be reversed. Christ will never be unraised from the dead. Christ will never be uncrucified. It's done. It's finished. It's a work which brings the sinner once dead in trespasses and sins, to newness of life in Christ. It's a work which brings the sinner, once happy in their trespasses and sins, to conviction of sin and repentance. It's a work which brings the sinner, once guilty and condemned in trespasses and sins, to forgiveness and pardon through Christ. It's a work which brings the sinner once lost in trespasses and sins to be found by Christ. We've just sung about that. It's a work which brings the sinner once separated from God in trespasses and sins to be reconciled to God in Christ. It's a work that makes the sinner a saint it's a work that makes the stranger a citizen of heaven. It's a work that makes God's enemy, his child, all secure in Christ and in the Father's sure promises. That's the work of grace that God has done in you if you're a Christian. And so the Christian can, even on the way to the gallows, rejoice in the Lord because the Christian's joy is not based upon changing earthly, uncertain circumstances. The Christian's joy is based upon heavenly, unchanging, 
certain realities which have been established for you by Christ and by the work of God's Spirit and according to his truth. In the language that Paul used when he wrote, he was writing in Greek. Paul used in grammar the present active voice. And that has two things of significance to it. First of all, he wrote in the present tense. In other words, it is a constant reality. At every point in time in which you live as a Christian, you are to be rejoicing in the Lord. And it's in the active voice. We are always to be rejoicing and we are to give ourselves to rejoicing in the Lord. Look for the things that you have in Christ and you cannot help but rejoice. The Christian has a position and a place and a standing before God in Christ that can never be removed. God has made a declaration about each of his children as to their relationship to him in Christ. And that standing with God is for all of eternity. Nothing can ever break it down. And your salvation has yet to reach its culmination. There's even more to come. But reach it, you most certainly will upon the return of Christ. The joy of the Christian, you see, is to be able to do this in any and every situation. To turn your eyes upon Jesus and to look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world, both the bad things and even the good things, will all grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And in that you will rejoice. And so the Christian is to rejoice. But you have to keep turning your eyes there to Christ to know that joy in all its fullness. Keep on rejoicing. Let me ask you a question. Is your salvation a thing of joy to you? Do you rejoice in the Lord? Yes, I know you believe in him. Yes, I know you trust him. Do you in your soul rejoice in Christ? Has there been a moment just in this last week and you have found in your soul great rejoicing as you've thought upon Christ? Is this joy something deep in your soul that you're aware of every day? Keep rejoicing in the Lord. And secondly, he says in the second verse, beware of those who would steal your joy. Now he makes three statements. In reality, he's probably thinking about the same group of people when he makes these three statements about these dogs, these evildoers, the mutilation. Now in Paul's day, and what he has in mind here specifically, are a group of people who came to be known as Judaizers. 
Now, Judaizers were Jews who had professed faith in Christ, but they refused to let go of certain things which they believed not only made a Jew Jewish, but also made a Gentile Christian. And one of the specific things that they used to talk a lot about was the issue of circumcision for men. And because Paul knows that this is an issue that is not required anymore in the Christian church, Paul refers to it simply as mutilation. Because it has no purpose whatsoever in the things of God anymore in the days of grace in Christ in which we live. And so it is nothing more than mutilating your body. Now circumcision, of course, was instituted by God for the Old Testament nation of Israel. And it served as a physical sign on all of the men. It was a sign that they were God's people, or at least they were supposed to be. Because as God's people, God intended that they would live in covenant with him. That they would love and serve him from the heart. But actually, most of them didn't. God's purpose was that they would walk in his ways and that they would be obedient to his law. But actually, most of them didn't. The outward mark of circumcision was supposed to signify a far deeper spiritual reality. But for most of them, that inner spiritual reality wasn't there. And of course, the physical act of circumcision required a part of the body to be cut off. And it also involved the shedding of blood. And even in that, there is some significance and symbolism. Circumcision has certain advantages in hygiene and there is an implied cleansing in circumcision. And the shedding of blood acknowledges the presence of sin that needs to be dealt with. But Paul, a circumcised Jew and a Pharisee for whom these things once were absolutely sacrosanct, he knows and he understands that these Old Testament signs and symbols are no longer required because of what Christ has done. There's no need for these things anymore. He makes his case several times in the New Testament and uh, we'll just read what he says in one particular place about these things. And that's in his opening when he writes his letter to the Romans in chapter 2. He addresses the issue here. Listen, listen to what he says from verse 25 in Romans 2. Circumcision is indeed profitable to you if you keep the law. In other words, he's saying, if you're going to follow the act of circumcision, you need to keep the whole of God's law perfectly. If the law is going to do you any good. But if you are a breaker of the law, and let's face it, everyone is, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, it's pointless. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor, a transgressor of the law? And here's the point. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. He is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision that of the heart in the spirit 
not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now he expands on those themes in other places, but that's the whole point. It's an issue of the heart. If you've got that inward heart experience of God's grace and forgiveness in Christ, Christ, you don't need the external. Well, these Judaizers, they won't accept this. They continue to insist that circumcision is also necessary. But Paul says, no, it's nothing more than mutilation. And the problem, of course, is this. It's a Christ plus salvation. To say that you need something in addition to Christ is to say that Christ alone is not sufficient. It's to say that Christ alone cannot save you. You need Christ plus this. Now, to say that you need to add something to Christ, well, what does that do to your joy? Because who knows if the thing that needs to be added is going to be good enough. It destroys everything that we have in Christ to say that you need Christ plus something else that you must now do. And where is our joy then? The specifics may change, but the general message can still be heard today if we're not careful. You're not really a Christian unless... You're not really a Christian unless you've had the second blessing or unless you can speak in tongues or unless you still observe the Old Testament Sabbath. Whatever the issue is, Unless you've got Christ, but you must do this as well. Now you might be thinking to yourself, well, what about all of those exhortations back in chapter 2 that Paul brings to Christians, where he says you, you need to be like this and you need to be like that. Is that not the same thing that Paul is doing there? Well, no, it isn't. For this important reason, those exhortations, like the many others given by the apostles in their letters, and indeed given by Jesus in certain sections of places like the Sermon on the Mount, they are exhortations to those who are already saved concerning how they should live because they are saved. They're not instructions on how to be saved. That's what the Judaizers were doing. You cannot even be saved until you've also been circumcised. But that's not what Paul is doing or, or the other apostles in their letters. It's about how you should be living as one who is saved in Christ. This is how you should live because you are God's child. This is not how you become God's child. That right is given by God to those who believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. Paul's not saying anything to attack those doctrines. You cannot make yourself more saved than you already are in Christ. You don't need to do these things because you think God will save you more or love you more. Those exhortations in chapter 2. It's not that God will love you more. Not that God will save you more if you do those things. God can't love you and save you any more than he already has in Christ. He's already demonstrated Everything that he needs to demonstrate about his love for you in Christ, it's all done. Now, it's true that you can please God more if you're obedient. But that's an issue of sanctification. It's not an issue of justification. In relationship to your heavenly father, you can be a more obedient child. But you can't make yourself to be more of a child than you already are. 
I grew up and had a mum and dad at home like most of you. I was their child. Sometimes I was a good child. Sometimes I wasn't. But I was always their child. The Christ has made you to be God's child. That can't change. You can't make yourself more of a child. You can be a more obedient child. You can be a less obedient child. But you can't make yourself more of a child. Christ has done all of that. Now, that's not the teaching of these men that Paul's talking about. They're saying, oh, you're not really even a child until you've been circumcised. And Paul says, those who teach anything different to what I'm teaching you are dogs. That's a rather unflattering term. The Jews called Gentiles dogs. Now, when Paul says dogs, don't think Andrex puppy rolling in feathers. Oh. Don't be thinking about your lap dog pooch. Think mangy, scabby, stray, flea-ridden mutt scavenging through the rubbish for scraps. Think a pack of wild, rabid, drooling hounds preying on any, any animal they can find and tearing it to shreds. Those kind of dogs. That's the image that Paul has in mind. Evil workers. Beware of them. Paul knows churches and Christians can be led astray far too easily. So he unashamedly repeats his warnings. So as many times as we keep meeting those warnings in the scriptures, we too will hear them again. And Paul didn't apologise for repeating himself. So there's that warning. Be, be wary about those who can steal you, steal away your joy. And thirdly, he reminds them of who you are and what that means. Who you are and what that means. We are the circumcision. These people who are saying, yes, but if you only... No, Paul is saying, no, you're already there. You're already there. You already are what they say you're not. You already have what they say you lack. You're already there. Who you are and what that means. You are the circumcision. Now remember from Romans 2, circumcision is of the heart. It's of the spirit of God. It's that inward reality which matters and which counts. That God has come into you by his Holy Spirit and completely and totally changed you. Do you have that inward reality of what it means to be a Christian? That's the issue. Now this verse will challenge you head on if you're not a Christian and it will encourage you if you are. Firstly, as a Christian, you can have full assurance that you have this reality on the inside. Look at the certainty of Paul's language. For we are the circumcision. He has no doubts whatsoever. You are in Christ. There's no ifs, no buts, no maybes. You're safe in him. God has done his work in you. 
Paul knows that if you've come to Christ on your, sin, on your knees as a sinner, Paul knows that if you've come to Christ humbled and broken in confession of your sins, Paul knows that if you've come to Christ looking to Christ as your substitute and as your saviour, Paul knows that if you've done these things, then God has done this great work of grace in your life. Paul knows that if you have come to Christ with nothing in your hands, but simply by faith to trust him as saviour and lord, then if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and if you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul has every confidence in these great gospel truths. Is that you? Are you confessing with your mouth the Lord Jesus? Do you know in your heart that your saviour rose again from the dead and that your life now is in him? You are saved. You have everything you need in Christ. Why will you not rejoice? Why would you not rejoice? You are of the circumcision. You have that inward reality that God seeks and desires. You have a new, circumcised, cleansed heart. The old one has been cut away and been replaced with a new one. That is you if you're a Christian. The evidence of that is that you worship God according to the working of his spirit within you. That's what he says. There's three very helpful things here in this third verse. Three marks of a Christian. Worshipping God in the spirit, rejoicing in Christ, and having no confidence in the flesh. Three marks of a Christian. It's great where we find these little verses with these little nuggets of summaries of what it means to be a Christian. Here's the first one. You worship God according to the working of his spirit within you. Now, when you read the word worship, please don't think singing and music. Why? Because that's, that's not what Paul had in mind when he put the word there. When Paul wrote worshipping God in the spirit, he wasn't thinking of singing and music, at least not exclusively. The true worship of God, you see, has nothing to do with external things. It all, it's all in here. Worshipping God in the spirit. It's all about what's going on in the heart. And it's all about what, go, what is going on in your renewed Christ-like mind as you worship. It's impossible to make worship better in the sight of God by holding a certain type of meeting in a certain type of building at a certain time, it's even impossible to make worship better in the sight of God with a certain type of musical accompaniment. It doesn't make worship better in God's eyes. And in fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Paul's, Paul gives us an altogether different definition of worship. He says this, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Hang on Ian, you say the word worship didn't appear in that verse. You got it wrong. It doesn't say worship, it says service. Yes, I know. But if you read it in the Greek, it's the same word. Worship is service. Service is worship. It's the same word in the Greek. 
Both are to be done in the Spirit and according to the Spirit of truth. Worship is all of you. Worship is all of your life. Worship is everything you do and everything you say. Worship, worship is every thought that you think. Worship is every attitude that comes over your heart. With the aid of the helper and with the help of the comforter, and in conjunction with the person of God who came into you and awakened you and has changed you, you're to live a life of worship and praise and service to the Lord. He's the one who, the Holy Spirit, brought God's truth to bear upon you. We sang that in that hymn. He's the one who, who opened up those blinded eyes and opened up the word of God's truth to you. Your whole life is an offering of worship, an offering of service to the Lord, according to the Spirit who now is at work in you. And next, the Christian rejoices in Christ. I wonder... Do some of you rejoice more in your football team than you've ever rejoiced in Christ? Maybe not yesterday. But is it true? Are there things that you've done with your hands and you rejoice in them more than you've ever rejoiced in Christ? Are there achievements that you've attained that you rejoice in more than you've ever rejoiced in Christ? Are there objects of your pride that you rejoice in more than you've ever rejoiced in Christ? And that can even be things like your children. Are there acquisitions that you've made and you rejoice in them more than you've ever rejoiced in Christ. Look again to Christ this morning. Seek his forgiveness if you need to, for your lack of rejoicing in, for your lack of reveling in, for your lack of boasting in Christ as your Saviour and as your Lord. And finally, we don't trust anything in ourselves. We don't trust anything of ourselves. Now, when Paul talks about confidence in the flesh in this verse, I think we must conclude that he's talking specifically about your salvation. Now, the issue of confidence in the flesh can be applied to other areas of the Christian life, but here I think it's specifically about salvation. You cannot look to anything that you have done and think that it will help you when it comes to the issue of salvation. And if you find yourself wanting to include anything about you as a reason why God should save you and why you should go to heaven, then you've missed the whole point of the gospel entirely. If you think there is anything about you that makes you just that little bit more commendable to God than him. You've missed the gospel completely. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That's talking about confidence in the flesh. I dare not 
trust the sweetest thing that I've ever done. Because even the sweetest thing is like a filthy rag before a holy God. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's the believer. Rejoicing in Christ. Keeping away from those who say, oh, you need this as well. Oh, no, I don't. I've got Christ. And looking unto him by his spirit, living a life of worship and service to the praise and glory of his name. In this is true and real and lasting joy. So guard it with all your being. Well, may the Lord help us.